ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In 1982, Nancy Withers went to the train station in Bordertown, South Australia, to pick up a delivery. Sitting inside a crate in the shade on the platform was a young dog. His name was Bullenbong Mate, and this beautiful black and tan Kelpie would change Nancy's life. Nancy had grown up on the land. She'd been around working dogs all her life and had started breeding Kelpies to sell as working dogs to other farmers. But she had never met a dog quite like this one, and he taught her what Kelpies can really do. Nancy went on to breed 17 generations from him. And this year marks the 50th anniversary of Nancy's working dog stud, Pamanda Kelpies, with demand for her dogs coming in from as far away as Bolivia and Scandinavia. Hi, Nancy. Hello. So, Bullenbong, mate, this was maybe the most important dog in your life. But before we get to him, tell me about the very first dog that you called your own. My very first dog was a collie cross pup that was given to me by my father when I was about nine years old. He was black with a, just a little white on his chest and medium length hair. And he was a border collie, which your father had had border collies. What did he think about the breed? Well, my father usually only had one or two dogs and he had a great respect for them. He had a dog called Mac before I was born. And um, Mac was a very white border collie with very long hair. Anyway, um, my father always said to me, Mac knows more than I do. (laughs) About sheep or just about life? About working stock, (laughs) I think. (laughs) And so when you got your little dog that you named Peter, was it your responsibility to train him or were you too little to do that? No, it was my responsibility to train him. But of course... Well, A, he was a crossbred dog, and at that stage I didn't have access to sheep. So I trained him to be a companion dog, trained him as a guard dog, (laughs) and also to retrieve and just basically to have a little bit of fun. What was going on in your family, though, Nancy, when, when you were given this little puppy? Well, sadly... My younger brother, I'm the oldest of three children, and sadly my next brother was diagnosed at the age of five uh, with leukaemia. And my parents basically changed their lives. My mother spent a lot of time travelling, mostly to Adelaide, with my brother Craig. And for the 11 months nearly that they tried to save him and find a cure, she was hardly ever home. They actually leased a delicatessen so that at least one of them could be with myself and my younger brother, who was then only one year old. And what do you remember of this delicatessen that your family leased? The main thing I remember was the Italian immigrants who'd come to Mount Gambia in the 50s, and this was 1959-60, and the wonderful people they were, how wonderful they were to my parents, all the different foods that they ate. And my father learned Latin and he had no trouble at all with the Italian language. So he was uh, quite fluent very quickly. Were they open? Were your parents open with you about the seriousness of his diagnosis? 
Yes, well, my mother was in particular. She told me that that um, there wasn't much hope for Craig and that he would probably die. And because he was unwell, obviously I wasn't allowed to do some of the things in playing with him that you would with normal young children would do together. So she she told me right from the start. So I was always aware that that was going to happen with my other brother, Mitch. Well, he was so young, of course, that he didn't have any concept of what was happening. I guess that must have been a time when having a little puppy to comfort or, you know, distract you must have been a really, really clever of your parents to have that dog there for you. Yes, I think so. And certainly he was great company for me on walks and whatever. And um, I used to also like to go and spend time with very close friends of my parents who had a dairy farm. I spent a lot of time out there and I could take Peter with me and they had two wonderful dogs as well. So, yes, Peter was an integral part of keeping me occupied. And then how did your parents cope with the loss of their of their son, Nancy? What do you remember about the time after your brother's death? Well, first of all, my mother was a very courageous woman and obviously loved us very dearly. And she insisted that when the time came that Craig would die in her arms, which he did in her bed. I imagine she was numb. You know, it's hard to know as a child, but I expect that's the case. And she almost immediately buried herself in work. She was a very talented dressmaker, but she also took on a position managing a a clothing store in Mount Gambia, uh, which she held until her retirement. My father, he was very quiet. I think his Scots ancestry made him perhaps unable to express how he really felt. But the sad thing was that no matter how much my mother tried to persuade him to go back farming, um, he wouldn't. He changed his life and he supervised shearing teams. He then later went and worked in the forests with the Italian immigrants. Many of those worked in the huge pine forests around Mount Gambia. And my father really didn't speak of it again. Why do you think he didn't want to go back to farming? I just think that there was so much grief that he didn't want anything to be the same as it had been previously. And you say your mum threw herself into work as a seamstress. What sort of clothes did she make? Well, her specialty was wedding dresses and uh, I've beaded many a bodice of a wedding dress. Really, and you were put to work as a, as a kid, oh, were absolutely. you? Absolutely, absolutely. And my brother and I ran the gauntlet of the dropped pins in the carpet. But she was uh, very talented. She was also very proud that, um, she, as she said, she had made eight outfits that had been worn by people to meet the Queen. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, yeah, she was a great designer. I look back now and think if if only, you know, she was around now, what might she have done? She could design anything. And what expectations did they have, your mum and dad, for you as you became a young woman? What was expected of 
young Nancy? Well, my my mother always wanted me to pursue feminine um, things and was always appalled when I'd whip off on a horse somewhere <laughs> without a saddle or whatever and disappear. I always rode ponies, a lot of them borrowed, and then I can remember sitting down at my 14th birthday and, um, you know, how you make a wish. And I was making the wish and I said, it's no use. And um, that was because I'd always wished for a horse. I'd had a pony earlier on, but I didn't have a big horse of my own at that point. And my parents basically gave up and my father (laughs) bought me for my 15th birthday he went all out because he bought me a magnificent thoroughbred mare. <laughs> Your wish so came true. It did. So whenever I could, I would be on horses. But mum, my mother had one cousin who danced with the National Ballet, another cousin who was a top model and also was in the movie White Death, which was a movie filmed in Australia by Zane Grey, and... Mum really wished that I would pursue more feminine pursuits, but I just love being outside. I love being with animals, horses, dogs, sheep, cattle, whatever. Your mum didn't give up the fight easily, Nancy. Where did she send you in an effort to transform you into the young woman she aspired for you to be? Well, yes, I, I decided to leave school after I'd done what was then the intermediate year, because after that you could apply to be a nurse. And having seen how kind they were to my brother when he was ill, I really wanted to be a nurse. But between leaving school and being able to start nursing, I actually had some spare time. So my mother sent me to June Daly Watkins model and finishing school in Sydney, which was the place to go to. I imagine. And tell me what the curriculum consisted of. (laughs) Well, we learned deportment. We learned how to be a hostess. What's the secret? Well, first of all, never meet anybody at the door with a broom in your hand. (laughs) I've already (laughs) failed. (laughs) Just be welcoming and accommodating and... Always consider your visitors first. So make them comfortable. And then, of course, you had to learn how to set a table properly, how to conduct yourself in public. I don't know whether I've always done that well, but anyway. Clothing, how to wear the appropriate clothing for certain things. And it's, I still have a list of some of the my clothing requirements, and it's quite hysterical. Oh, really? What sort of things were on the list? Well, we have um, long white gloves, most useful they've been, (laughs) even white shoes to go with certain outfits. Not very sensible in the country. (laughs) Well, did you take on, I mean, have those lessons stayed with you, any of them? Of course. No, of course they have. That training at June Daly Watkins Finishing School did help you earn a crown of your own, I believe. Oh, um, <laughs> were you well, or were you not which? queen of the Mount Gambier uh, Christmas pageant, Nancy Withers? Yes, yes, I was. <laughs> what did that involve? <laughs> well, actually, in those days, it didn't involve a great deal. I wish really it had been more if I'd done more for the community because I really love community service. But basically, there were a couple of interviews, and then 
we were finally judged at a ball in those days in the show hall here at Mount Gambier. And I sat on the float and I, hopefully looking suitably regal, <laughs> and I I know I was terribly sympathetic for the our actual queen at that time because that crown was so heavy <laughs> and it, it really was very heavy. But it was an enjoyable time. And what I'll say about that was people sometimes put these things down and dismiss them. And I think that anything that gives a young person more confidence is a great thing. I imagine it led to many suitors making themselves known to you, Nancy. You met your future husband around this time too. Yes, I I met him. Yes, there wasn't a lot of time in my life for suitors. I was, you know, I was just too busy with the horses. Well, once you and Tim married, where did you start life together? We lived on his parents' or family property at Nalpa Station, which is near Wellington in South Australia. If you look at a map of the Murray River where it enters Lake Alexandrina, on the western side, Nalpa has land down the river and along the lake edge there. There's about 13,000 acres there. Is it a beautiful property? <laughs> it's, um, it grows on you. <laughs> Look, I'd have to say, yes, of course. I think you can find joy in any land, really, or I can. But coming from the southeast, my first sight of Nalpa was somewhat daunting because it's very, very flat, very open. It's very windswept country. There are salt pans and it's just totally different to the southeast. What kind of role did you take on at Nalpa Station as a young bride? Well, for a start, we got married in 1971 and um, shortly after there was the big fuel crisis where fuel was very expensive and I wanted to go back to my nursing training. But for me to be able to drive to Murray Bridge, which was the closest major town, actually would have resulted in a deficit Um, my wages wouldn't have covered the cost. And um, we decided that that wasn't very practical. So fortunately, the Withers family made me very welcome working on the property, which in some cases was unusual in those days. And it was around this time, Nancy, that you decided to begin breeding Kelpies. Why did you want to give that a go? I just wanted something of an independent income. So Tim had a very good red kelpie he called Sam and I had seen him work and because of my childhood with an uncle who was a very competent three-sheep trialer with his border collies, I did have a very good idea of, you know, what, what a good dog was And I thought Sam was a very good dog, so I purchased my first Kelpie bitch. How much of an investment was that? (laughs) It was the equivalent of six weeks' wages for a workman. (laughs) Wow, you really wanted those two Kelpies to hit it off. We did. (laughs) You were busy working at the farm, living at the farm, and had two young sons as well. 
But what was happening with your health in your 20s, Nancy? Well, in 1978, early 1978, I had a small operation and which required a general anaesthetic. And six weeks after that, I got the most dreadful pain in my abdomen just under my ribcage. It was excruciating. I was literally nearly blinded by it. Um, It used to last for about half an hour and then it would disappear, leaving me as if I was bruised uh, internally. Then it wouldn't happen for a while and then all of a sudden, maybe two or three months afterwards, it would happen again. Did doctors have any idea what was causing it? No, they didn't. And the major problem was because I lived an isolated life, by the time I got to a doctor, I didn't have the pain. You must have felt like you were going crazy as well as suffering the pain. Yes. And I have to say that I had one younger doctor who was absolutely wonderful, believed in me and knew there was something wrong. And I don't know where I would have been without him at the time, because you start to wonder whether this is just your imagination. It's really sad, but that's true. Anyway, we'd bought a property in the southeast of South Australia and moving back to some of my home country. And my brother Mitch was driving and we were just south of Meningi. And I got one of these attacks, as I called them. And I fortunately got to the Meningi Hospital And a doctor was there and he was able to diagnose that all my intestines were paralysed and that was what was causing the pain. I should actually go back a step because prior to this, they had decided that maybe it was my gallbladder and that it should be removed and they actually found nothing wrong with my gallbladder. So they thought they'd remove the appendix in case it was that. So then I met a very nice doctor at Kingston when we moved down to that area and he was elderly and he told me to examine everything I ate prior to having these attacks and immediately it was obvious. And it was, for me, the preservative in corned beef, sausages, etc. And that was the one that really triggered the bad attacks but there were smaller attacks and they were other preservatives that were causing them. And so you I've could also, avoid those yeah. and that and that relieved yes. the symptoms then? And the so condition. I avoided those. I was pretty good, but it took me quite a few years to oh. get a lot of my strength back. And what did that mean for your work on the farm and, and this start the, the way that you'd started breeding dogs? Did you have to just put all that on hold? No, quite the opposite, because in order to be able to afford, there was a lot of developmental work going on with the properties that we'd bought and a lot of new pasture being sown and things like that. So I actually did the majority of the stock work with the workmen, went back to my beloved horses. Most of it was done on horseback. By then I had a few kelpies and I just spent a lot of my time in the saddle, really. And then you got what proved to be a fateful phone call about a young dog. How did Bull and Dog Mate 
come your way? Well, the original female pup that we bought came from the Bullumbong Stud in New South Wales. Mike Donnellan was the owner of that stud and he was from a long line of top graziers and stockmen and dog breeders, also stock horse breeders, and he was a fine stockman. And I'd had several other dogs from Mike, all very good dogs, and by then I'd started to establish the stud as well. So in 1981, Mike was thrown from one of his horses and he badly injured his back. And some months later, he rang me and he asked that I would take on a young male Kelpie that he'd had, that he'd bred for a sire from his very old mustering bloodline and that he, he wasn't well enough to work. So he offered me, this dog was made, he was 17 months old, he hadn't been worked on the sheep, and he offered to give him to me and he would send him by train. What did he tell you about him? Why did he think that he'd be a good dog for your stud? Well, he said to me that only one person in a thousand will understand this dog. And he said, and I might as well be speaking in Singalese to the other 999. (laughs) Now, I have to say, Mike was a character and he had very definite views (laughs) on things. I don't know how he'd be in today's society. (laughs) You'd obviously impressed him as someone who knew how to talk dog. That's right. He must, must have seen something. I don't know. But anyway, it was... You know, it was quite a gift, really. So much, you know, research goes into the genetics of these dogs. So many years' experience trying to breed them, trying to get what you want. He'd obviously, to have kept this dog for 17 months when he really wasn't able to work it, meant that he was special. Tell me about that day in January when you first met Mate. Where was he? Well, he was sent to Bordertown. That was the closest railway station to us in those days, we were over just inland from Robe and um, I took a hatchback car with Chrissy, who was a help at the time, and the two boys, and we went over to Bordertown. It was the, the long weekend in January. Consequently, there was hardly anybody about at the railway station when we arrived to collect him. And I strolled along the station and I could see this crate and this black form in it. And... I bent down and looked through the bars of the crate and I was met by a very steady, calm gaze. There was no smiling, no waggy tail, none of that. And he just looked directly back at me and I said, you must be mate. And no, you know, nothing. (laughs) Anyway, I turned and walked to try to find somebody and the minute I turned, he gave one bark, (laughs) big, deep bark, as much to say, well, I've been in here for long enough, you obviously know who I am, get me out. What was the journey home like in the car? (laughs) Well, he was in the hatchback part of the Lancia car that we had in those days and he was resting his head on the back of the rear seat. I was driving, of course, the children were in the back seat and we were going down the road and I I looked in the rear vision mirror and 
for some reason, he appeared to be looking back at me. And I said to everyone, you know, I, I think I'm going to like this dog. And he gave one deep bark. And, of course, it frightened us all in the car. We all jumped and then we all burst out laughing. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Nancy, he made an impression on you right from the start. What was at the heart of that? In old literature, on these Highland Collies, which the Kelpies are descended from, they use the word sagacious. It's not a word used commonly nowadays, but sagacious means mentally penetrating, exceptionally intelligent and seeming to reason or deliberate. And I could not have described <laughs> him any better. He wasn't a puppy. He was 17 months old. What did that mean for training him? Where did you begin? I just had to change nearly every attitude I had towards dogs and their training and just let him be. He didn't want to listen and really most of his life he didn't listen. Doesn't that make a bad dog or a misbehaving dog? Not when they're as clever as he was. (laughs) You see, it was, as my father said about his mate, knew more about it than I did some of the time. And, you know, it's even hard for me, having known him, to describe his natural knowledge of, of how stock worked. He was amazing. One of the things he taught me early on was that... If I sent him off out of sight around stock, I had to remain where I'd cast him from. Why? Because otherwise he couldn't find me. So he'd go and do the job and come back to you? He'd bring them back to me. And the day he taught me that lesson, I was actually in some gentle rolling hills and I was on foot at the time and I sent him around a large mob of 400 merino weathers, which we hadn't had for very long. They weren't very well educated and they darted off out of sight around a gully and he disappeared after them. And I waited and I waited a while and I thought, oh, he must have lost them. And I walked around the side of the hill and I couldn't find him. So then I went back over the hill And there he was in the gully I'd sent him from, running around the sheep, standing up on his hind legs and looking over the top of them trying to find me. Where's she gone? What's she doing? That's right. (laughs) So you can see that after that I'd learned that I had to remain uh, stationary and he never, ever let me down. He would often muster over hills in thick bush, 
you would know if he'd had to leave a sheep behind because he was in danger of losing the mob because he would bring the sheep to you and then he would turn and look away oh. to where he'd come from and then he would head off to where he'd been, find the one he'd left. Tell me about uh, an early um, experience with mate where you, you saw him engaging with an old crossbred you. What's that story? Well, when sheep decide that they don't want to go with the mob, most dogs will stare at the sheep and they will set the sheep, which isn't really the best thing to do because then the sheep bails up and I can't pick up a sheep very <laughs> easily. And I didn't want to have to carry a sheep and most of the work was on horseback, so I didn't want to put the sheep on a horse. So basically it was really important that every sheep came. So this particular day, the first day I saw this, obviously I saw it many times afterwards and I've seen it in his descendants since too, but this particular day his daughter and son, Fleur and Cobber, were with him driving sheep down a gully. He was on the left-hand wing halfway up the sides of the hills just checking out the hills and there were a few trees and bracken, etc. around and there was an old ewe that decided that she could not continue with the mob. These ewes, uh, anyone that knows about sheep knows that if they're facing the direction you want them to go, they can't move. But if they're facing the direction they want to go, they pick up a remarkable speed. <laughs> like a toddler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this particular sheep laid down and made went up to her and he pulled her jowl, the wool on her jowl a bit and shook her and barked a bit in her head and nothing happened. So then, to my amazement, he turned and he walked off away from her, just to the side of her, walked slightly up the side of the hill, had a sniff here and there, lifted a leg on a yakka, another one on a tree, but all the time he would just give a sideward glance to see if she was moving. He'd faked disinterest. <laughs> and he kept that up for a few minutes. Didn't really take very long. There was no pressure on that you whatsoever. But then when she got up, she attempted on her escape route, but he was there blocking her, not near her, away from her and not looking at her. And I watched this for a few minutes and I was incredulous. And, you know, that sheep turned and went back and caught up with the mob and kept coming with the mob. It's almost and like that, he was playing chess or something. He was moves ahead of, of, exactly. of strategic thinking. Exactly. But when you think about it, these dogs, all our dogs, are descended from wolves. And although they are far now removed from wolves. Wolves must be able to think strategically. Like, it must be part of a dog's psyche to be able to think strategically, if we allow it to. There's another thing that we describe in these livestock working dogs. It's called presence. And presence cannot be seen, but you can see the effect of it. So... We have what we call a strong dog. That is a cool-headed, brave dog. It isn't an aggressive dog. 
It's what I call an assertive dog. If a dog has presence, it's always a strong dog, but a strong dog doesn't always have presence, hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So Mate had incredible presence. And in the yards, for instance, he could just stand there and the sheep would fly past him. He would have hardly had to move, which was a nightmare in yard trials <laughs> because the sheep would quite often be all jammed up against a fence um, and he would have done nothing. <laughs> and is that, that something you can train or that's a dog's just born with no, that or not? That's just temperament. The dog is born with it. It, it is genetic and it, it's not terribly common, but it's it's there. And when you have it, it's an incredible attribute to have in a dog. Mike, the, the bloke who gave mate to you, described him as an old blood Kelpie. What does, what does that mean? Well, if you read the scant information on Kelpie or the origin of the Kelpies in Australia, you'll find that there were two basic types of dogs that uh, Scottish Collies that were imported to Australia. I'm not talking about the Border Collie, the black and white one. I'm talking about the black and tans and blacks with just a little bit of white on them. They are mainly from the highland areas and from the islands. The Sky, there was a Sky Collie. Some of their blood is in these dogs. And the two types are quite different. One, which is mate's type, were best left alone with the livestock, were described as being incredibly clever, very caring of the stock, didn't like to be commanded, very physically strong and uh, loyal and very, very tough. Then you had another type that were a bit more rash in their working, required more commands and generally more supervision and took commands much more readily as well. So Maid was the the former of those two. They described them as hill-gathering collies or hill dogs and they were the dogs that were the fell dogs in Scotland and I... I'm so fond of the hill-gathering type of collie. They're just so incredibly clever. And what they do, you simply cannot do without them. It wouldn't be possible to get those sheep off those mountains or, you know, out of the creeks with all the overgrown or, or out of the bush or whatever. And they like to stay with the stock. They're elegant dogs. They're calm dogs. And... They almost float when they move. They're (laughs) very light on their feet. I mean, what's motivating those dogs in that kind of behaviour, Nancy? Is it a desire to please you? Well, I say that I don't think there's a livestock working dog on earth that exists to please its handler. (laughs) I think we'd like to think so, but it's not the case. But, I mean, they seem Um, to the outside eye so obedient and so responsive and and doing, as you say, these amazing things to help the the farmer or the landowner that couldn't be done without them. Well, that's right, but it's to do with their 
their actual mentality. Those dogs, they love working livestock. So they're bred to love that to begin with. That's their strongest instinct to go around livestock. Then once you start to train them, they begin to learn, oh, that's the goal. So they therefore go out and work with you to achieve a mutual goal. Again, think about the wolf. They must work together to achieve their goal. So why wouldn't dogs with just a little of that instinct left in them be able to mentally cope that way? Why, why wouldn't they be able to work with a strategy? Mm. We're just lucky that our intentions line up with theirs. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Well, sometimes they don't. <laughs> well, how quickly do you know when you've got a new puppy? How quickly can you tell if it's likely to be a, a good working dog or if it has that miraculous presence you described? Well, that comes with your knowledge of your own bloodlines. That's an enormous help. Then you just handle them from when they're quite tiny and get to know their individual personalities and you're always, I guess, looking for that one, that one special one. You, it, you can't help it. I mean, you love them all and you, you know, hopefully you've bred a litter of six or eight pups that you're proud to have bred. And as they start to show interest, even playing with each other, they show just little snippets of what they might have, just in the way they move the way they look at each other. The pup that at eight weeks of age you've been, you know, you've been feeding them extra food by this time for about a month and all the pups rush to the gate to see you when you appear with the feed. But one pup runs to the feed tin and sits next to the feed tin. (laughs) You see, they're the things that, make the difference because you know that pup has worked out. I don't get fed at that gate, but I get fed at that tin, so I'll be the first. You've been working with these dogs, breeding them for five decades or so. Do you have all of these traits and all of the, you know, relationships and who was whose uncle and who was whose father and daughter stored in your head, Nancy, or do you have some stack of meticulous notes kept? Well, I have both. What I think the most valuable thing that unfortunately I can't pass on to anybody is that I'm incredibly lucky in that when over the years I've seen a very good dog, I can see its movements like a video playing in my mind and I will know the exact way it moved, the exact approach to the stock, the degree of eye that it has. And so when I look at a puppet eight weeks, if I know the genetics behind it, it's often quite possible for me to see a slight movement of a very good dog in its ancestry. (laughs) As I said, I'm very fortunate in that. Is that something you've trained, developed over time, that skill, or was that just there for you? Well, I believe that if you come 
at something with love and total interest. You learn. You can't help but learn. And I have such respect for them that I guess I've just applied myself. My father, one of the things he taught us as children was to be very analytical. And I am certainly. And that has stood me in great stead with the dogs. The other thing that you must be careful of when you breed these wonderful animals is to be honest if the result is not as you wished. Sometimes you can make a mating of dogs with the best intent to breed certain traits that you're hoping to find and find none of those traits in those pups. And that's when you have to say, I made a mistake. Sometimes that's difficult, but there's no use then carrying that on any further. It's very, very complex breeding dogs because not only do they have so many traits, working traits, but those traits also have varying degrees within the traits. Mm. So you have to try and combine all these things to get a result that is the ideal dog for the task. Not long after you got mate, though, Nancy, you had another drama with your health. What symptoms suddenly appeared? Yes, well, I'd actually judged the Victorian Yard Dog Championships at Kilmore and it had been terribly, terribly cold, which was unusual. It was the beginning of December, but it was freezing. And I got very cold. Anyway, about a week after that, I started to feel my arms aching to begin with. And then I just put that aside, as you do as a farmer, yet another muscle strain or something. And then about a week afterwards, I started to feel as though there were hundreds of ants eating the soles of my feet. It was a most, um, well, it was different to anything. It's not like pins and needles, for instance. It's different altogether. And this didn't let up. Was it painful? And, uh, well, there are more more painful things, but it's, I've described it before as a a mind-bending pain mm. because it's inescapable and it's there constantly needling you and it's very sharp. And as I said, it started off, it felt like hundreds. Well, then within a few days, it felt like thousands of ants eating my feet and it was basically coming up past my ankles. I had blood tests, etc. No one could work out what it was. Then... About three weeks later, all of a sudden, one day I got out of bed and I could feel it rapidly going up my legs. And it was in my fingertips and it was heading towards my elbows. And I obviously rang the doctor and I came down to the Mount Gambier Hospital and I spent 10 days in the hospital. The first 24 hours... (laughs) I was in a four-bed ward with these lovely elderly ladies and they didn't get a wink of sleep that night. All I did was rock and roll and groan. The doctors did not know what to give me. They were frightened to give me 
pain relief because they didn't really know what effect that would have on me. So I had no pain relief. But then by the next morning, I had no feeling at all from my toes to my hips, from my fingertips to my shoulder blades. And that was an illness that we now know was Guillain-Barre. It affected my sensory nerves plus some of my motor nerves. So I didn't walk very well for quite some time. Uh, What did it mean in terms of your life on the farm? I went back to the farm. It was difficult to walk, but then, of course, I had mate because he was only fairly young then. I had mate and his offspring. I had my wonderful Anglo-Arab mare, Breezy, who was very kind to ride. The workman would saddle the horse for me and then help me onto the horse. And then from there, I was free. I could work because I could open the gates from the horse. I could do the stock work and the dogs would move the stock for me. You cannot fault a farmer for hard work, honestly, (laughs) Nancy. (laughs) How long did those symptoms persist, That the difficulty with the walking and that sensation in in your nerves? Well, what happens is that once those nerves have sort of died off, then you're numb, then you go through a phase of that which went for some months and then the feeling starts to return. So you are plunged back in to the ants again and it's very unpleasant. I can remember in the mornings looking at the floor next to the bed and dreading the sensation of putting my feet on the floor for the first time. But after that, then you write and you go on. And I'd have to say that many times I felt like screaming or crying, but I didn't do either. There was no point really. And to be fair, there are many worst illnesses that you can have. And at least this one, you know there is a fair degree of recovery. Your precious, sagacious Kelpie mate was there with you during that recovery and in all the years following when you worked so closely together. He passed away many years ago now. What was the end like for him? I had no idea whatsoever that he had cancer and he was still working and backing sheep four days before I realised that something was wrong and... I brought him down to the vets at Mount Gambia and I said, if it is what we think it is, I don't want this prolonged. I don't want him to wake up from the anaesthetic. And he didn't. I took him home to our property northwest of Narrowcourt and um, we dug a hole under the most beautiful big South Australian blue gum on the side of a rise. That's where we work all the young dogs and near the yards where the sheep are worked and that's where he rests. In the the years between, around below all the lovely trees that are scattered on that rise, there are so many now of his descendants buried and... um, It's certainly 
a place that I can go to reminisce about um, some really wonderful times and the legacy that he left me. The thing is that we are so reliant on them. It's a mutual relationship and a very strong one. They're with us through the hard times and the good times and they never desert us. Are you still working with dogs now? Of course. <laughs> who's in your life now? Who, who's your favourite? There's no mate replaceable, oh, I'm sure. But No, but um, nearly 15 years ago now, I was lucky enough to breed a pup that I called Titan. And of all the dogs I've kept, he is the closest to mate in his ability. Titan is very arrogant and has his own ideas about things, Um, but he has been almost, almost as good. If I said perhaps the difference is that Titan just isn't quite as patient as mate. And I have at the moment another, shall I say, sagacious young dog (laughs) who really impresses me and his name is Falcon. And not only is he incredibly handsome, he certainly is very, very intelligent and I'm really enjoying his company. Well, if you've been lucky to have those dogs, they've clearly been very lucky to have you too, Nancy. Thank you for for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.